Good morning, and thanks for joining us. Um, again, if you're online, appreciate it. Many of you probably got the email this week, but um, if you didn't, Blake Johnston will be joining us the 1st of June as our worship pastor. Uh, we're grateful for those in the worship team who have been filling in while we're in this transition period, and we look forward to getting Blake with us. So when I was in college, my last year in graduate school, I took up jogging, and I was running about three miles a day, trying to get in shape. And on a Saturday morning, I had a roommate say, hey, man, there's a 10K. We ought to get up and run it. A 10K is about six miles. Yeah, yeah, but you can do it. So I got bullied into this 10K. And I remember running along, and, and they give you, you know, your, mile, your markers, 1K, 2K, 3 And I got about halfway. I think, you know, I got about three miles to go, and I'm really tired. So I think maybe I'll just stop. But nah, you got to keep going. Put one leg foot in front of the other. So I did. And uh, I finished, and, and I'm so glad I did. But I, I remember that feeling of, I just want to stop. I just want to quit. Well, sometimes when it comes to following Christ, it can feel like that. I just want to stop. I just want to quit. This is hard. This is not what I want. My question is, why remain faithful? Why keep running, if you will, with the Lord? That's what we want to talk about today. So if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Revelation chapter 14, uh, we're going to Go through this passage, and we're going to wrestle with the question, why remain faithful to the Lord? Why? And here's a quick overview in chapters 1, verses 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. God kind of lays out the parameters of this book. It is a vision. John has gotten a vision, but it's not for speculation. It's, it's a prophetic word to seven churches who are suffering under the hand of the Romans. And the Roman emperor and the Roman gods are demanding to be worshipped as God. I believe the Romans, the gods are mediating their blessings through the emperor. And these Christians say, no, we, we represent Jesus. This prophecy, though, comes in the form of a letter. John is writing the letter from the island of Patmos. He's already suffering. He's been banished, exiled, because of his faith. So he writes to seven churches in chapters 1 through 3. Each church is addressed individually. These are the issues. This is what's going well. This is what needs to change. Chapters 4 and 5 take us, John, back into heaven. And um, heaven's in order, but earth is not. And there's a, a scroll that is revealed with God's plan to redeem the righteous and to judge the unrighteous, but it's got seven seals on it. And the seals were, you couldn't break them unless you had clearance to it. And nobody is seen fit to break the seal. And John begins to weep, but then he hears about the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. And these are militaristic terms. One who is a conqueror, but he looks and he sees a slain lamb. And the idea is Jesus conquered his enemies by, by dying for them. And he is fit to open the scroll. And so in chapters 6 through 8, we get the, the seven seal judgments. And they seem to be chronological in order, bring us to the end. But the seventh seal judgment introduces a whole new set of judgments, the trumpet judgments. And those are in chapters 8 through 11. And we've walked through those. There's a third set of judgments coming, the bowl judgments. It'll come in chapters 15 and beyond, and they will take us to the end. But before that, there's an interlude. In the house, oh, there I am. Technical difficulties, but we will overcome. Um, there's an interlude in chapters 12 through 14, and that's where we've been. The, um, chapter 12 introduces a dragon, representative of Satan. And it talks about a battle where, where he is defeated, and in anger, he is thrown to the earth. And he has a short time, and he's attacking the people of God. 
chapter 13 then introduces us to two beasts, and this dragon delegates power to these beasts, and, and they're heads of state. And one of them looks like he's come back from the dead. He plays himself off as God. A second one points people to worship the first beast, and if they won't do it, he'll either take their life or he puts a, a mark on their uh, wrist or, or their forehead that if they don't have it, they can't participate economically. And what came out of that, we understand, is there's a pressure, um, both in terms of uh, intimidation and deception, that people would worship the state. And we find out that Satan is using the nation state to draw people away. Well, chapter 14 is going to kind of give us the final story of that, and that's where we pick up in verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. 144,000 is a number that's used symbolically. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of disciple. Thousands, a complete number. And this is the complete people of God. We're not counting on that as an exact number. We understand it's symbolic. And they are marked for God. Well, in chapter 13, you couldn't keep your life or you couldn't do business unless you were marked for the beast. And what we wanted to say is, there's a principle here. Every one of us is marked. You and I are either marked for God or marked for Satan. You say, no, 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 Andy, I, I'm doing my own thing. I, I'm doing, well, then, then you're marked for Satan. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do, to do your own thing. Well, in verse 2, it begins to describe what's going on with these victorious people in heaven. It says, I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song. A new song is a song of victory. Before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. So God has redeemed these people who have given their lives for Christ. And here's what's true of them. Verse, one, uh, first, verse 4. These are the ones who had not been defiled with women for they kept themselves chaste. Adultery is always a metaphor for compromise with the world. And what God is saying is these that are victorious didn't give themselves to worldly values, and ultimately they didn't worship the beast. Second, these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the life, they follow the example, and they follow the instruction of Jesus wherever it took them, even when it took them to their death, because Jesus died. Third, these have been purchased from among the men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. First fruits is symbolic of giving as a sacrifice. Farmers in Israel would give their first fruits to God. And, and these people have sacrificed that which is most valuable, their lives. And, verse 5, no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. They didn't buy the lies of the beast. They didn't buy into the propaganda. They spoke the truth that Jesus is Lord above all. So that's the victorious people. Now the focus turns to those who took the mark of the beast, to those who followed ultimately the dragon, who followed ultimately the state. Three angels are going to speak three distinct words of judgment. First one's in verses 6 and 7. It says, I saw another angel flying in, mid, in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, 
because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. It's a final appeal to worship God. Honor God. And what he's saying is God has made himself known in the creation. Years ago, I, I went to hear uh, Mike Strauss. He's a particle physicist for the University of Oklahoma, a, a Christian and a theist. And his first two points I resonated with. He said, you know, there's no such thing as an infinite regression. In other words, you've got a primordial soup. You've got to ask, where did this stuff come in the primordial soup? There's got to be a creator or you've got something coming from nothing. That is illogical. Second point he made is if you talk about the things that had to come into play for, for life to be sustained, the distance from the earth and the angle from the sun and the amount of oxygen, the amount of, he said the mathematical probabilities of that happening are infinitesimally small. It takes more faith to believe that they just happen to line up than there's a creator. But here's the third thing he said. You know, he said, we talk about evolution. He said, I just want to talk about the human eye for a minute. And that's of interest to me, it has been, because a few months ago I got uh, cataract surgery. And so, you know, the front of the eye, you've got a, a lens and a, a pupil. And then on the back of the eye, you've got a, a retina and an optic nerve. And his point was, you know, evolution would say that they come in in, in in parts, in pieces. How does the eye evolve? What is the advantage to just having a lens or a cornea and not the, the retina and the optic nerve? And if, if they all come in together at once, then you, you've got a designer. Somebody, somebody put that together. He said, you know, the, the idea of evolution, he said, I'm just talking about the eye. I'm not talking about the whole human body. And so God has made himself known in the creation. And so the, the first angel is announcing one last call to worship and honor God. Second one. Another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. In the Old Testament, Babylon was an archetype for every nation that opposed God. About 600 B.C. or around that time, Babylon becomes the world power. And at the same time, the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, is, is defying God, and God is warning and warning and warning. Finally, in 586 B.C., he removes his hedge of protection, and Babylon comes in and destroys the city, destroys the temple, and carries off many people to live as refugees in what is now modern-day Iraq. And yet, 100 years before that happened, through the prophet Isaiah, God said, I'm going to raise up the kingdom of Persia. My people will be in captivity for 70 years, but then Cyrus, and he names Cyrus, will be the ruler of Persia, and he'll issue a decree that grants religious liberty. And in fact, that is what happened. What's the point? God is sovereign over every nation state, and the people that are the first readers are living under the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was awesome. You could think, this is going to last forever. No, it doesn't. God lasts forever. Nations come and go. So Jesus, through John, is saying to the re these readers, this, this nation is not eternal. This kingdom is not eternal. God is. Now listen, I love living in the United States. I'm glad I'm an American. My blue passport has got me in and out of countries. Some would argue we're the most powerful nation in the world. We will not last forever. No nation does. God lasts forever. Let's not give our ultimate allegiance to our country, to a political party. It's ultimately to God. Third angel. 
speaking a message. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and it will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And we need to read this in relation to chapter 13, because chapter 13 said, if you don't get the mark of the beast, you'll either lose your life or you'll be unable to participate economically. This is the other side. If you do get the mark of the beast, you'll face judgment too. The only difference is this judgment will be eternal. Look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. It seemed like the prudent thing to do in chapter 13. But in chapter 14 it says, no, you give your allegiance to Satan. You give a, your allegiance to the nation state of whom Satan is behind. You'll be judged forever. So then here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So, so we're asking this question. Why keep running? Like, okay, I'm in the middle of my 10K. Why keep going? Why keep going when it's hard? We are in a culture that is about intimidation and deception. Why keep going when we're feeling that? Here's the answer. The Lord will redeem the faithful, but judge the unfaithful. God will redeem the faithful, who may even have to give their life, but He will judge the unfaithful. Now, again, the first readers were living this out. They had a Roman Empire who was squeezing them. And jailing them, persecuting them. If they wouldn't worship the emperor as God. And, and there are nation states all over our world where if you don't worship the king, if you don't worship the dictator, you'll be in prison. It, being a Christian can cost you. Cost you imprisonment, cost you your job, and cost you your life. We live in a nation where it's relatively, comparatively free. And yet, Satan is still at work through human institution or, or human values. Like what? Like popularity. What will you do? What will you compromise? How much will you drink? In what way will you dress to be popular? Comfort. We're in a market-driven economy. So you, the consumer, are the one they're after. So when I was a kid, McDonald's and Burger King. McDonald's motto was, you deserve a break today. Burger King was, have it your way. Hold a, lesson, hold a pickle, hold a lettuce, special orders don't upset us. Maybe I'll sing that for you later. But I still got the jingle in my mind. You know what Target says today? Expect more than ever before. We expect comfort. We expect ease. And I fear that's infiltrated the church. It's easy to stay at home. It's easy to church on the couch. It's easy. Church is a body. It's not about hearing a message. It's not about singing a song. That's part of a bigger picture. We come together as a body. I want to encourage you to join us. We need you. You need us, the body. We need each other. Well, as we move on in our passage, uh, God speaks a blessing for those who remain faithful. He said, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they say, so they may rest from their labors, the labor of following Christ, for their deeds follow with them. What? Their deeds of faithfulness. 
There's a time we will rest in the presence of God. Well, then verses 14 through 16 give two pictures of judgment. I want to read the first one in uh, the first, there's in verses 14 through 20. The first one's in verses 14 through 16. It says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Then he who sat on the cloud swung the sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And, and scholars debate, was this the judgment of the righteous, the unrighteous, you know, even God's people, not for salvation, but for a value of how they live their life will go through judgment. That, that's an interesting academic article, I, I, uh, discussion. I'm not sure where I fall on it, but, but what is in view is, is there is judgment coming. The second one is clearly God's judgment of the wicked. It said, another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also had a sharp sickle. Another angel, the one who has the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of God, the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood came up from the winepress up to the horses' bridles in a distance of 200 miles. Remember, God is communicating through pictures. Again, think of the political cartoon. What's being communicated here? Judgment is widespread. There's no escaping it. So what do we do with this? You know, we're, we're, we're wrestling this question. Why do we endure? Why do we go through it? So last June, we got back from a family vacation. And, you know, the, the, at least for the time that the pandemic had abated and there'd been stress. And I, anyway, I got on the scale after that and I thought, by golly, it's going the wrong way. It's going the wrong way. And I had turned 60 in that past year. And at 70 years old, my dad had had a debilitating stroke. So I thought, I'm 10 years out. Both my grandfathers died of stroke. So I think I need to do something about this. So what I decided was I was going to start with these high-intensity interval training. So that's what I've done for the last year. So let me tell you what it looks like last Monday. We, we, this class, we're, we're on a step the whole time. We're up and we're down and we're doing this and that. And then we have four high-intensity things. And we're on the second one. And the second one is you come up and you take your knee up and you throw a 12-pound ball. And then you come down with you catch it in the other leg and you throw it. Back, and you do that for a minute. And I'm really tired. And then she says, we're going to slow it down and we're going to be slow and controlled. And I want one foot on the step and you hold your ball and you step back and then you step up, and then you step out, and then you step back. And I think I'm slow, but I'm not very controlled. And she says, we're exercising these big muscles, like your glutes and your quads. And I think, yeah, but I'm running out of thing. And then 30 seconds later, she says, we're, we're going to stop it. Now we're just going to, we're going to not worry about the arms. We're going to just focus on the legs. So I want you to, I want you to squat, keep squatting. For and I thought, lady. And I look at the clock, and it's 5.58 in the morning. And I think, why am I here? Why am I doing this? I should be in bed. But I think, oh, I want to avoid a stroke. That's, that's why I decided to do this. I, and I read, you need to pick your heart rate up. So I'm starting to do these things that jack my heart rate up. And it seemed good. But, but in the moment, it's kind of like, do I want to keep doing this? Well, maybe for you, 
you feel like I do. Walking with God at, at your place of employment, in your neighbor, you're excluded. You're denied a promotion. You know, you're not in the group text to go to lunch because you, you know how you are. You, don't, you, know, you know how you are. You think, do I really want to do this? Well, there's a day coming where God says, I'm going to redeem the faithful and judge those who are not faithful to me. First application, there's a judgment coming for all of us. Second, many of you follow Christ in here, but you are, have people in your workplace, you have people in your family, you have people in your neighborhood who don't know Jesus. Okay? We say, one of the values we said in verse 4 of these people who are victorious is they follow Jesus in every sense of the word. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. Let, let me tell you what the, the book of Matthew, Matthew 9, said about Jesus. It says, Jesus went up from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. Now, you need to understand, tax collector was the most heinous thing you could be because Israel was occupied by Rome. That means you're working for Rome, taking people, money from Israel, and giving it to the Roman government. And by the way, overcharging to line your pockets. So, so tax collectors were despised. And Jesus calls this guy Matthew, and he says to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, Matthew, that's the guy who wrote the first gospel you've got. Okay, so, so that's one guy. But it, but it gets worse. Here's where it gets worse. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table of the house, behold, many, many tax collectors and many sinners came and were doing what? Dining with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is interacting. Jesus is having a meal. A meal is a sign of intimacy. What are you doing? That's not what good Christian people do. Oh, yeah, they do. Jesus was not concerned about guilt by association. So when the Pharisees, the religious started, they said, oh, my word, why? That's my translation. Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? That's not what you're supposed to do. When Jesus heard this, he said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Catch this. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we say we follow Jesus, okay? That's good. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Is there enough evidence to convict you and me that we're friends of sinners? Because these sinners that are in your workplace, they're in your neighborhood, they're in your family, they're in your... They're going to be part of this judgment. Talked about in verses 17 through 20. And Jesus cares about them. So in our family, I was the driving parent. Which means when the boys got their permit, it was me. And I remember it would start, we'd drive around. We live over 95th and Holder's Yard, so we'd drive around. And, and I'm feeling okay about the 20 miles an hour. I think if, you know, if something happens, we get a fender bender, we'll be okay. But at some point, you got to come out on 95th, and if you go west, you go into town. But if you go east, it's two lane, and it's about 50 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a little unsettling for me, because I hope they, don't, they can steer the car, and I hope they don't steer the oncoming traffic, because that would be bad, especially if there's a pickup or something. And then there's a, there's a stop sign at 148th. And fellas, don't run that because they're going 50 miles an hour. And, and so, you know, I, about a half mile out, I'm saying, hey, don't forget to stop here. Don't forget to stop here. Don't forget to stop here. Why? Why did I do that? I'll tell you one of the things that stuck with me. 
the thought of those kids being in an accident. And I want to be with them as long as they'll have me. Now, with our, when our younger son had a permit, we took a family vacation uh, out to Colorado. And so when we got out past maybe Kearney, I had our younger son drive an I-80. And my wife was in the back seat praying, praying. And at some point, and you need to understand, she's the calm one, I'm the excited one in our family. At some point, she said to me, who is the man sitting in the front seat? Because it's very calm, it's very collected, I didn't, you know, and one time the lane changed, was a little abrupt, it's kind of like, oh, we almost ended up in the ditch there at 70 miles an hour. Um, and I said, you know, if I snap at these kids, they're not going to ride with me. I want to be there. I want to do everything I can that a police officer doesn't show up on our doorstep and say, Mr. McFarland, I've got bad news for you. Our younger son told me, he's got his license now, he said, after the fact, he said, Dad, I always knew when to stop because you were in the passenger seat stepping on a brake that wasn't there. But I thought, I want to be with them because I want to do everything I can that they don't get in an accident. It still may happen, I hope it does, but I want to. Do you feel that way about your neighbors, your family, your coworkers? I want to do anything. I want to do everything. Ultimately, it's out of your hands. But God has given us a task. He has given you a task. He's given me a task to be a friend of sinners. Why? That I don't end up being described in Revelation 14, 17 through 20. We follow Jesus. He was a friend of sinners. Is there enough evidence to convict us of that? I was in middle school. Uh, one of my favorite units in PE was floor hockey. And I would say about a third of the kids, the boys, played ice hockey. That was big. I was in the Detroit area. And, um, boy, you wanted those guys who played ice hockey on your team. If they could do it in the ice, they were really good in uh, floor hockey. So you get to know these guys. And ice, ice time was at a premium. It ran all the time. So some of these kids would practice from 2 to 4 in the morning or 3 to 5. And I thought, why do you get up? that early. You know what they say? Because I love hockey. And if that's when I have to practice, I'll get up and I'll practice. It's not every junior high kid's dream to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. But they loved hockey that much. How much do we love Jesus? How much are we willing to say, I will put up with that simply because I love Jesus? As we grow in our love for Him, our willingness to endure the cost of following Him will grow. Why remain faithful to the Lord? The Lord will redeem the unfaithful, but will judge. Uh, I'm sorry, the Lord will redeem the faithful, but judge the unfaithful. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that you are God and you are good. Thank you that Jesus came to die for the sin of the world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.